I'm Dave Baker. And I'm Spandrew Spice. Welcome to Deep Cuts, the podcast where we pick a topic and walk you through the ins, the outs, and the nitty-gritty so you can appear like an interesting and idiosyncratic person at your next forced social function. Today's topic is... The Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum. What is the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum? Well, in the late 1800s, a wealthy art collector named Isabella Stewart Gardner funded the building of an art museum to house her massive collection. In her waning years, she created a contract with her estate that stipulated that no art could ever be removed or added to the museum. In the 1990s, there was a huge robbery at the museum and several rare pieces of art were stolen. However, because of the stipulation in the contract, no new art could be added to replace it. So, the museum has several areas with blank walls. There are many conspiracy theories about who stole the art. April 14, 1849, Isabella Stewart Gardner was a trend-setting American art collector and philanthropist. Originally born in New York City, Boston, Massachusetts, would be the place where she'd eventually make a name for herself. The daughter of a wealthy linen merchant, she spent much of her early life in Manhattan. From age 4 to 15, she attended a nearby academy for girls where she studied art, music, and dance. She also learned to speak French and Italian. At age 16, she and her family moved to Paris, where she enrolled in a school for American girls. In 1857, she was taken on a trip to Milan and was given the opportunity to see Jean Giacomo Podli Pizzoli's collection of Renaissance art. The collection was organized by historical era. This experience would make an indelible impression on the young Isabella. Upon leaving, it's said that she confessed if she were ever to inherit money, this is what she would do with it, construct a cathedral to artistic ambition. Shortly after returning to New York City in 1958, she received an invitation from a former classmate, Julia Gardner, to come stay with her in Boston. While there, she met Julia's brother, John Lowell, Jack Gardner. He was viewed as one of Boston's most eligible bachelors. They fell in love and were married two years later, on April 10, 1860. They were gifted a house, 152 Beacon Street, in Boston, by Isabella's father. Jack and Isabella had one son, born on June 18, 1863. He died of pneumonia on March 15, 1865. A year later, Isabella suffered a miscarriage and was told that she could no longer bear any more children. Julia Gardner passed away around this same time as well. All of this trauma sent Isabella spiraling into a dark depression. On the advice of doctors, she and Jack traveled to Europe in 1867. Isabella was so ill that she had to be taken aboard the ship on a stretcher. The couple spent most of the year traveling, Scandinavia, Russia, Paris. They traveled around the world, which in the 1800s is a much more difficult task than it is today. Thankfully, the trip worked. She was able to wrestle herself out of the depression. She began taking notes and journals and keeping scrapbooks. This trip allowed her to reinvent herself. Upon returning to the United States, she was able to reboot her personal life into a popular socialite. After Jack's brother died, Isabella and her husband adopted their boys, giving them a home for their entire lives. However, it would not be as doting mother 
or infamous socialite that she would be known for. It would be her art collection. So before we move fully into the art collection, uh, I want to talk about a couple things that are probably going to be running themes through this episode. One of them is... Every one of a person's family dying. <laughs> yes, yes, that, that definitely is... There's a lot of death in her story. But I think the thing that's interesting about how that's handled is that how money, especially during this time, was just a superpower. It just allowed you to remake your existence. I mean, it still does to an extent, but not on this level. You know what I'm saying? Like the the, the level of pr privilege. Yeah, I was going to say that in one specific thing, it's like the fact that when she was a kid, she just like wanted to have a the biggest art collection ever. And the idea that like she ended up just like getting older and actually doing that is pretty crazy. Like that's not common uh, that you, someone has like a childhood dream and then they like exactly fulfill it in that way and the reason for it is because i, I just realized like as i as i was having that thought i was like oh yeah like if you're that fucking rich that's the that's the key to having your childhood dream fulfilled like the reason why people's childhood dreams don't be, aren't fulfilled is because they grow up and they realize it's not realistic whereas that's not a that's not a factor for for her like she grew up and she's like now it's time to do that thing i wanted to do Oh, daddy died and left me like $50 million. I guess I'll just go buy the things I wanted to buy. But I, but, but even, even more so than that, like, look, am I, am I, am I saying that, that, uh, being rich doesn't have its problems or, or cause people to spiral out in weird existential ways? Yeah, sure. Life's hard and everyone has the problems that they have. But when you can just like, travel the world and party away your suicidal ideation because everyone you know died in like a five minute stretch eh, especially in the 1800s when life sucked and you could die from like an infected toenail like that you're living a different life you know round the world jeeves yeah even like the way that's that a bunch of these articles have phrased it of like she was so despondent, she had to be carried onto the ship. Do I have empathy for people who've lost loved ones? She was so despondent, she had to have her caviar and champagne poured down her gullet. She had to have the gold jewelry put onto her hands by a servant boy. She was so suicidal that she had to have all her gold-encrusted knives taken out of her dining set. They were scared that she would hang herself so her crystal chandelier was removed from her bathroom. Like, at, at this time, like, people's whole lives were changed overnight because loved, one loved ones died in childbirth and people got malaria or they just drank bad water and it, like, gave them a fucking brain, you know, tumor worm thing. I don't fucking know. Whatever. Like, they didn't know. They were just like, oh, fuck. That guy just fucking yeah, died. Yeah, you just died because you you breathed wrong and you just died. And like and like most people don't have the privilege to be able to sit in that. You have responsibilities. You have the other nine members of your little family living in a one bedroom apartment in, you know, little Italy, and you're like, Oh, we gotta work for our family. Yes, a bunch of them died on the ship that sank coming over here from the older country. But we gotta fucking save the rest of us. Little Giovanni fell off of the boat. Little Giorattini got crushed by the boat. When we got off the boat, it crushed him. Little Giancarlo. 
I don't know what happened with him. I just turned around and he was a skeleton. I don't even fucking know what happened with that one. Giancarlo, he had the nicest smile. But when I looked at his tiny exposed skull and saw those teeth glistening back at me in the bathroom, I was scared for my life. And that's when I ran and was like, no, we must kill all the children. And now I've murdered my whole family. You must start again. Little Isabella. She was watching that VHS tape she found and a little girl crawled out and then seven days later she was gone. <laughs> but this is what I'm saying. Like, you know, at this point in time, you, 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 life is fucking hard. It's really fucking hard. And d it, does it suck that she had a child die and a stillborn child and her best friend die like in the course of like a year? It's horrible. It's awful. But also, I can't really imagine, like, I just can't fathom having the amount of money where you can just, like, and now we're going to go on a never-ending party on the cruise ship and be happy forever. Yeah, it's like, let's Gatsby this shit. Yeah, the doctor comes in and he's like, well, uh, Mr. Gardner, it seems like your wife is very depressed. She's had multiple people near her die over the last six months. Yeah, Doc, I know. That's why we're here. Can't you give her some happy pills or something? Well, no, this is the 1800s. What I can recommend, though, is you Gatsby that shit. You've got two options. You can either just cover her in leeches and just see if that does something. Or you Gatsby that shit. Uh, son, there's a new there's a new type of medical procedure. It's a great procedure, if you catch my drift. It's called the Gatsby. Have you tried it? No, Doc, what does that entail? You just party all over the world. You just go everywhere all over the world, spend a bunch of money, buy a bunch of art, don't think about anything real, and maybe it'll work. Just do that forever. If, if you... If you have enough money, just do it forever. And then when you get back from this, your brother's going to die. But then you're going to just basically get three kids. You want kids, right? Well, yeah, Doc, I do want kids. Well, now you don't got to actually, like, go through it. You don't got to see any of the crazy shit. Nothing's going to come out of your wife. It's going to be great. You just get three kids now. These kids have been in the oven for a bit. Like, they're they're baked. Like, you know, you know that not, one of them's not going to stroke out or something like that. Like, they've gone, they've gone through the... The period where you got to worry. Yeah, it's all good. It's all good. These kids, pretty normal. Pretty normal. You're, you're going to be fine. You want them? Well, I don't really want my brother to die. Well, he's going to die. So either you take the kids or you don't. But the thing is, when you get back and your brother dies, I have uh, the perfect the the perfect solution, the perfect cure. You got to Gatsby it. <laughs> uh, Doc, but how do we Gatsby with the kids? Don't even worry about it. You're going to have so much money because her father is going to die. And he's going to give you so much money that you're just going to be able to Gatsby forever. We're going to be we're going to be perma Gatsby. Oh, Doc. Oh, oh, I don't know if I'm ready for a perma Gats. Oh, no, John. Perma Gats is what you're going to do. Once you start the Gatsby, if you ever stop the Gatsby, you're going to get real sad. All of these things are going to catch up with you. And also you've been collecting things all along the way, new things that you didn't even realize were sad because you were Gatsbying. And then if you stop the Gatsby all at once, you'll be immediately just just from all sides, all of this grief will come in and it'll just crush you into a pulp. And then you will die. And then some somebody else that loves you will have to Gatsby and they'll be Gatsbying forever. So it's like, the way that little Isabella died with that little girl that comes out of the VHS tape, it just goes from person to person. So you got a Gatsby forever. 
Never stop Gatsbying. Never stop Gatsbying. Never take emotional inventory of the trauma that you've uh, endured and try and deconstruct it, understand it, and move through it. Never try and heal. Never try and reckon with anything from the past. Never try and grow as a person. Always just Gatsby and buy art. It's an investment. Just Gatsby. So anyway, uh, that'll that'll be $300. My name is Dr. Nike. Uh, I'm actually quitting medicine, and I'm going to go start a, a shoe company. And um, uh, yeah, that, 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 just Gatsby. That's, that, that's got a ring to it. I might change it a little bit, but see you guys later. <laughs> but like, that's the thing that's interesting about her story to me is like, the sadness inherent in the art collection is rarely talked about. It's always like, what an amazing collection. Wow, she has all these like seminal pieces of art. Oh my God, they were stolen. Conspiracy theory, conspiracy theory. But like the person behind this, the like one line clickbait story is really weird and sad and fucked up and extremely compelling to me. But she got speed. She did, Gatsby. The earliest works in Gardner's collection were accumulated during their trips to Europe, the Middle East, and Central Europe. She inherited roughly $1.75 million from her father and spent most of it on art. She bought the concert by Vermeer, Rembrandt, and John Singer Sargent. She had works in her collection from artists all over the globe. All right, so now we're going to look at some of these pieces. Uh, this is a piece that she commissioned by one of my favorite artists and illustrators, John Singer Sargent. Uh, Spandrew, you want to you wanna describe this guy a little bit? The the first one, uh, yeah, it's just a, a just an immaculately rendered sort of uh, I don't know what the period is that that period of art is called, but the, this this eighteen hundreds period of fine art, um, almost photorealistic, and it's a a woman standing in the middle of a sort of like patterned wallpaper type thing that just kind of like frames her and kind of like the, the pattern of it kind of shapes around her and guides your eye inward towards this woman standing there. And she's just kind of standing in this very like neutral pose. She's got this flowing black dress on with like a sort of pearl, like uh, midriff thing, this thing that's hanging on her middle to like accent the, the curve of her, of her, uh, um, the, the curve of her hips and uh, she's just kind of like an 1800s looking woman. And she's just got kind of looking at the camera in a very neutral expression. Yeah, she almost has a kind of slightly sad or forlorn expression. Yeah, it's a beautiful piece. John Singer Sargent's very good. Uh, if you're not familiar, highly recommended. I don't know why I'd recommend it that way. It just is. It's highly recommended. He's amazing. Amazing artist and illustrator. Um yeah, anytime anyone's ever like highly recommended, I like I don't go and look at the thing that they told me about. I mean, understandable. I wouldn't listen to me if I had just heard somebody go highly recommended. I'd be like, uh, how about highly recommend don't shut the fuck up and then just punch them in the face and pull their shirt over their head. Yeah, I mean, maybe that's just the Bordeaux coming out of me. Like, I'm just like because I <laughs> because I don't speak French and I'm surrounded by people speaking French all the time, I'm just like putting weird emphases on different syllables just to try and like fit in. I'm like, hello, how are you? You're just you're talking to them and they're just like they're whispering to each other. They're like, why does he sound like a like a monster truck announcer? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so next up, we have a photo of her. Um, what do you think of this photo? Do you think this 
uh, John Singer Sargent likeness is a good likeness of her seeing the actual photo- photograph of her. Oh, yeah, totally. Like, yeah, like I said, it's the, the, this painting is just near photorealistic, and it is a pretty good likeness of her. It captures that just unavoidable sadness behind the Gatsby. Yeah, they call that the great sadness. Behind somewhere behind the Gatsby, you can never get rid of the fact you can you can never get rid of the, whatever the thousand yard stare of everybody I ever loved died in two seconds. Um, the next uh, the next painting is by Anders Zorn, um, and it was painted in 1894, and uh, it's titled Isabella Stewart Gardner in Venice, and it's it's a more impressionistic, energistic en- energy. Uh, driven piece of her opening two bay window doors at night and walking through and uh, she's wearing like a white dress that's almost like a slip and um, it's rendered in all these like very evocative emotionally evocative kind of like rapid brush strokes so it almost looks like both her and the environment are on fire um, and uh, she's like looking at the the painter or the viewer uh, and seems to almost have like a little smirk and she's kind of like almost prancing into the room um which you know for 1894 feels like a very um uh, erotically charged or kind of uh, promiscuous subtext to the piece yeah andrew zorn's like after i finish painting this in a week we go it's a deep cut callback and it works here on multiple levels (laughs) um yeah so so that's kind of the background of her where she has this huge collection she lives a long life um the the collection is kind of fueled by the twin engines of privilege and depressive buying in some ways this is like the the uber rich person 1800s version of like buying toys on ebay at two in the morning to try and make yourself feel better yeah retail therapy Yes, retail therapy. Yeah, she's like buying buying coach bags at 3 a.m. on eBay. But, but she's just like commissioning priceless works of art of herself. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, paint me like one of your sad girls. Paint me like one of your soon-to-be indelible images that will lurk through the halls of uh, art, art installations and museums throughout the annals of history. Um, yeah, uh, before we kind of go to break and come back, um, with the, uh, the crazy stuff that's going to happen in the future, uh, in the, in the future of the 1990s, um, I'm curious what your exposure to this story is and what you, uh, what your, what your kind of general level of familiarity with is it, of it is Jesus. Yes, I'm very familiar with the story, um. This was this was something I, I brought up to you a while back. And basically, um, whenever I was in college, I wrote a screenplay about art thieves. Um, and so I did a bunch of research on art theft and the art, the world of like black market art sales. And um, I learned about a lot of different stuff. I learned about just the weird world of art theft, which is it's kind of funny. And I, I kind of want to do like a, another episode about this more in general, because it's a very fascinating world where like art theft is almost like non-existent. It, it's almost never done because it's like it's the worst asset to steal of all time because there's almost no way to resell it. Like if you steal if you if you steal a piece of art that's valuable and that's valuable enough to want to steal, 
it's going to be very well known and the art trade is such a closed loop that anybody who would be interested in buying it will know it's stolen and they will immediately report you to the police. There's literally no way to resell stolen art. So the people that do it, typically, they either get caught immediately and just go right to prison or they steal the art and it's never seen again and their motives for why they stole it are just never clear. Like why why did these people steal this art? They just it just disappeared and then nobody ever saw it again. And I learned a lot about about a lot of different incidences of art theft and this is obviously one of the most noto- notorious. So I read a great book about the Isabella Stewart Gar- uh, Gardner Museum theft and there's also a documentary which is a very which is very good that I watched. Um, and I just find it very fascinating. There's something about, I mean, we'll, not not to get too spoilery, but you know, there's something very fascinating about the theft itself. The fact that because of the unique situation of the way that she set the museum up, the stolen pieces could never be replaced, so they still just kind of sit there as empty spots. That's very fascinating to me. But just the entire world of art theft is very fascinating to me. The idea that like it's almost rarely done. It's done. It's been done maybe like you could count the number of times that big art thefts have have occurred in history, like in modern history. And the ones that and the ones that have occurred in modern history are like the same five guys. Yeah. Yeah. And it's and it's like and it's a small handful of people who who would who do it because like there's a very specific type of person who would want to steal art because of the fact that it's like. Any normal thief has no interest in it because they can't profit from it at all. It, and it puts a target on your back. I mean, you saying you can't profit from it at all isn't completely accurate. You you can. It's just very hard. And you're usually going to be reselling whatever the priceless piece of culture is for one-tenth of what the actual value is because you're selling it on the black market, blah, 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 blah. So you can, but it's it's very, 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 very hard. But it's But it's, but it's very, very hard to the point where nearly – a hundred percent of people who ever have stolen art are in jail. Like, like they, 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 it's almost impossible to get away with it. There's really just almost, this is almost one of the only examples of somebody who successfully stole art and then just never got caught for it. But I, but I, yeah, I find, I find this story very fascinating and uh, yeah, we'll get into it in the second act, but like, yeah, this is just, this is, I'm very familiar with the story and I love this whole thing. This is very up my alley yeah me me too i love um i love heist stories i love real life heist stories i love fictional ones i love you know art thieves as a concept is very interesting to me because again it goes back to the idea of culture and privilege you know where theoretically the idea of art is to capture a moment in time of a specific culture or specific individual's experience and reflect it back to us and hopefully we can learn from that and I think there's something really interesting about the fact that museums are set up to be almost kind of like a curative ex- experience for the viewer to be like, these are the things that are important from the various kind of conduits of the zeitgeists throughout time. And in its most pure kind of platonic ideal, it's a very egalitarian, very anti-classist idea in execution because humans are complicated and fucked up. It's a very elitist and fucked up scenario where only, you know, history is determined by the winners and, you know, uh, the patriarchy and and very oppressive uh, capitalistic elements in our global societies over time have charted what is valuable and what is not, right? And that's what goes into these museums. But I think it's fascinating that there would be 
agents that are counter to that endeavor and are almost like, again, platonic ideal, art thieves are kind of like Robin Hood, right? Like they're taking these things that should belong to everyone away from an institution and secreting it away in order to profit off of it, which is really, I guess they're almost like anti-Robin Hoods. Saying that Robin Hoods is wrong. They're, they're like anti-Robin Hoods, which is also very interesting to me, where it's like, this is something that belongs to all of us, and I'm going to skirt the rules and fuck everything up and take it for myself, which is really, it, it's just an infinitely compelling scenario. Um, and it's also compelling to see what our uh, apparatuses of government do to reclaim these things when they are taken. Um, so there's there's lots of like weird levers of power and privilege fighting at e- fighting each other at like every turn in these stories. Yeah, like you said, I also I'm very fascinated by just the the art thief themselves and the, like I said, the motivations for doing this and like the type of person who would who would want to do something like this or has like motivations to do something like this. One of these art thieves, which I've had it on the on the list to like do an a, an episode about this person uh, for a long time. But um, one of one of the guys who is rumored who, who people people have speculated that he might have been responsible for this theft, largely because, like you said before, there's there's only like four or five different people who do this, who like there's only like five art thieves that exist. Um, and so he was he's been speculated for years. One of the conspiracy theories is that this guy was responsible for this theft and like he's weirdly like denied it, but then other times kind of maybe like get given a wink, given a wink and a nod that maybe he did do it. Um, but this guy named Miles J. Connor, and he's this guy who's just like throughout the 60s, 70s and 80s and 90s. He just like he went on like one of the world's only art theft sprees. And he just like for decades worked with this team of people and then just stole a bunch of art from all these museums and stuff. And he never really got caught for the longest time because he really wasn't interested in selling it. Like he just, he was just obsessed with stealing art and he just kept it all as these weird trophies. So it's like, uh, it's like a different, it's a different um, outcropping of what you're talking about where it's not like, oh, the reverse Robin Hood thing, like I'm stealing this because to, to to give it back to the people, but like I'm stealing it away from these elitist systems and then I'm just going to hoard it for myself, which is, a, which is a, another weird, fascinating thing where it's like, it's like the Robin Hood trope, but also like this guy is like hugely egotistical. If you read his autobiography, he seems like a very unreliable narrator where you're just like, are these things true? Like the way you tell your story you are just like the greatest badass of all time. How much of this shit is actually true? And that guy, like he like literally just wanted to like steal a bunch of priceless art and then just like keep it in a basement somewhere where nobody could look at it. And like the sense of power of like, I've, I've deprived the world of this art is also very interesting. Yeah, they don't, no one appreciates these Edo period katana swords like I do. So I need 50 of them. Yes, exactly. But 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 to your to your point, there's something very psychologically charged about art theft where it says a lot about the people involved much more than any other type of theft. Like usually like the when you steal something, it means I don't have money. I am poor and I need money. So I'm going to steal some shit. 
because I'm desperate. That's usually mostly what stealing means. Art theft is like a fucking it's like a psychological inkblot test for the people that are involved in it in a very fascinating way. Act two, night at the museum. Early in the morning of March 18th, 1990, Two thieves, disguised as police officers, approached the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum. They tapped the intercom, and when the slightly confused voice on the other end asked who they were, they said the nine fateful words that would change everyone's lives forever. Boston Police, we have a report of a disturbance. The bewildered clerk let the two men in through the security room. Mind you, this was close to midnight, so the police appearance here was highly unusual, and yet the security guard allowed them in nonetheless. The two officers made their way to the front desk, where they met a long-haired, bearded man named Richard Abath. Their quintessential burnout, Abath played in bands and loved smoking weed, and routinely showed up to work his shift as an overnight watchman at the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum, high out of his mind. One of the police officers said to Abath, Are you alone? He responded, No, there's another watchman currently on a walkabout. The officers asked Abath to call his partner back to the security desk which he did. Upon the arrival, the officer looked quizzically at a bath, his demeanor changing. Wait, do I know you? I know you from someplace, don't I? Is there a warrant out for your arrest? You're a wanted man, aren't you? A bath, taken aback by this accusation, didn't know what to do. He was stunned. The officer continued by asking a bath to come out from behind the security desk and stand against the wall. He cooperated, and after the two guards had cuffed him, one of the officers said, Gentlemen, this is a robbery. I fucking got you with that wanted bullshit. You should have seen the look on your face, you fucking idiot. Yeah, he didn't say that. He just said, that, gentlemen, this is a robbery. But yeah. They quickly took the guards down to the basement, taped their heads and hands, and disappeared into the museum. They were left unsupervised in the museum for 81 minutes, during which time they stole 13 priceless pieces of art. Vermeer, Manet, Rembrandt, Sargent, and countless others. Well, not countless. They, they definitely counted them. They took meticulous inventory yeah it was, it was 13 it was, it was 13 it's not not as countless you know so nine other ones the rough estimate of the value of the paintings that were stolen is roughly calculated at 500 million dollars it's the most expensive art theft in recorded history among the stolen works were the concert one of vermeer's only 34 paintings that are known to exist and the storm on the sea of galilee by rembrandt his only known seascape. So so before before we move on, let's just talk about a few things real quick. So the first thing is this museum had very tight security. I mean, clearly there was a little bit of a weak point in this burnout dude who didn't seem like he was like too good at his job. But, you know, this this museum had a very had very tight security. Like maybe it wasn't as tight as like a really big like state funded museum or something like that but like this was a this was a small very valuable private museum by a family of massively wealthy people and they had a huge vested interest in keeping this place secure and it really just goes to show you and the this this really comes across when you read Miles J Connor's book I forget what it's called I think it might just be called Miles J Connor it's a, it's a very interesting book Let's see, did I, I put the back cover of the blurb here, but I don't remember if I put the title of the, no, I didn't, I don't think I put the title of his book. 
Yeah, I forget, I forget the title of it. I mean, we can find out. Hold on. Oh, it's just it's called The Art of the Heist. Yeah, The Art of the Heist, Confessions of a Master Art Thief, the uh, Rock and Roller, and Prodigal Son. Yeah, this this is honestly, I'd highly recommend reading this book. It's very, it's like one of the, it's one of the most fascinating books I've ever read. And talk about kayfabe too. Miles J. O'Connor Jr. loves some kayfabe. Oh, 100%. To the point where you're just like, is anything in this book true at all? Um, but, uh, the, the the one of the fascinating things that you get across that get, comes across in the book is just the power of social engineering where like Miles J Connor at least according to him his whole thing in his entire career of of thievery was just like he just was really good at just walking into a place and just being like hey I'm here and I need to do this and I'm supposed to be here and all right okay and then just like convincing people that he was supposed to be places that he wasn't supposed to be like just pure social engineering. He wasn't some like master cat burglar. He wasn't like amazing at cracking safes or some technical shit. He was just really good at just like walking into places and being confident. And the fascinating thing about this this um, robbery is that it all comes down to just this little simple thing that these dudes just walked in and just owned that they were cops and these guys just believed them. And it circumnavigated all the security of this museum for them to just be like, we're cops. Well, the other, yeah, I mean, and the other thing too is like, so this happened on St. Patrick's Day weekend or St. Patrick's Day Tuesday, whatever whatever day St. Patrick's Day happened is that's the, the night of St. Patrick's Day is when the robbery happened. And so in Boston, as you might assume, St. Patrick's Day is like, way different than it is in Los Angeles where it's like, it's kind of a thing where people go out and drink sorta, but not really. In Boston, it's like, we're going down to the fucking pub meet. Let's go. Or it's more, I guess it's more like, we're going down to the to the pub. People with Scottish accents really celebrate. <laughs> yeah, you don't know about the, the Scottish-Irish uh, community. And that's so racist of you, Spandrew, to not acknowledge the Scottish people's uh, uh, owning of the Irish holiday. Uh, that is not even an Irish holiday. It's an Irish-American holiday. St. Patrick's Day, but whatever. I'm not going to call you out in front of everyone. It's fine. It's fine. This is this is a call in, not a call out. Yeah. Um, but like, so because of that, the police were like everywhere in in the greater Boston area during the during this you know 24 hour period. So the fact that there were cops in uniform being like, "Hey, wait, something's fucking going on," is like he still shouldn't have fucking opened the door, but he was like, you, it's understandable why he would have because it's not like it's it's. At midnight, yeah. Is it unusual? Yes. But if there were cops at a place, I don't know. I don't. I. I don't know. It's really uh, those those levers of power, man. I'm fucking scared of cops. Well, yeah, but that, that's that that's it. That's social engineering. It's like it's like how do you even navigate around that? Because like unless you're like a really particular type of person who's like, no, show me your badges. Like most people aren't gonna do that. Most people, you just see a cop and you're just like, yes, this is a cop. I don't want to fuck with this person too much. This is they they scare me. Yes, a hundred percent. Actually, that's something that I've been talking about a lot with Nicole about because we, you know, we're here in Bordeaux, which is a bigger city, and there's a thing here in France called Operation Sentinelle, which is basically like their version of um, their version of uh, the Patriot Act. So whenever there's like a weekend or a large social gathering of some kind, they send out the national police, not just like normal, you know, bike cops or whatever. It's like 
motherfuckers with m16s and flak vests and military helmets and shit yeah that's the thing is like anybody anybody in america who i mean i'm not saying that we don't have our problems or whatever but like anybody who's like the united states is like a fascist country and you know it's like a fucking police state if you walk around france or italy like they've got fucking just military dudes like commandos with giant assault rifles that are just like in a park, just like you'll you'll just be in a park and there's three just fucking like dudes with giant machine guns, just like parole patrolling. And you're just like, oh, my God, like all those tourist destinations that you see, like, oh, you go to the fountain in, in Rome or whatever. It's like, yeah, when the camera pans slightly to the left, there's like 10 fucking military guys with giant machine guns. Yeah. Uh, like it's, it's really, it's not something I'm used to, uh, at all. Uh, and like, like yesterday we were on the train coming back from somewhere and, um, there were three national police officers like standing at my eye level. So like I was sitting down and they were, they were following the little, you know, the like, um, checker person who like sees if everybody paid for their tickets or whatnot. Uh, and they were just following behind that person and two of the guys stopped next to my chair and kind of turned their backs to me to look down the way. And one guy was right-handed, one guy was left-handed. So it's just like the butts of two guns like directly in my face right here. And I was like, am I am I getting bukkakeed by these guys' guns? Like what the fuck is happening right now? Yeah, it's it's like shocking to walk around Paris and like the bigger cities in Italy and just how casually there's like massive military guys with giant guns yeah and it's i mean it's been going since 9-11 so you know almost 20 something years or whatever um but it but here in france it's like a social problem now where there's a certain component of the population that's like this is this is you know theater of the mind it doesn't actually do anything like if there is a terrorist attack three guys with fucking m16s isn't going to do anything we should just not have this but the politicians don't want to get rid of it because if there were a terrorist attack and they were the one who decommissioned Operation Sentinelle, they would be the one that are blamed for it. Like, you know, it, it happened on your watch. There was this terrible tragedy and you fucked it up because the, if we had guys with guns there, it never would have happened, which is like a false, you know, hypothetical. And for all you people who leave reviews on the show, that's like, I love the topics, but they get off on tangents that have nothing to do with the show. Fuck you. <laughs> this is interesting. Oh, oh, and what one last thing, the other thing I wanted to say is like the other thing that's unprecedented about this robbery is, as we'll kind of probably get into, like we, so the most famous, these aren't their most famous works, but the most, but they're very famous comparatively, and they're the most famous pieces in this collection. But the concert by Vermeer, mostly, mostly, the big one is the concert. And then also to the uh, lesser degree, um, the Rembrandt piece, very famous, more more so the concert is like one of Vermeer's like more definitive pieces. It's just gone. Like this is not, this is unheard of. There's like, there's no artwork that has come to become like this very famous beloved piece of artwork in modern, in a modern context that just like we don't have locked up in some museum somewhere. Like, obviously, we did an episode about the theft of the Mona Lisa. Like, number one, that was before it was really famous. And number two, now there's just like, that's that shit's behind some major security. Like, nobody's getting at, after that. 
this is just unprecedented. But like these very famous, very iconic pieces of artwork are just gone. Like they haven't been seen in decades. It's fucking crazy. But here is where things get even stranger. The pieces that were taken were all cut out of their frames, damaging the pieces to an unthinkable degree. Also, the level of value of the pieces is wildly inconsistent. Like, yes, the Rembrandt and the Vermeer are obviously priceless, but the criminals stole an etching that's roughly a few inches tall and not even particularly valuable, and they took the time to unscrew it from its miniature frame when they could have just as easily stolen it in the frame. The men seemed to know how to cover their tracks as well, taking the records from the security devices and the recorded motion activations from the rooms. The work has still not been discovered to this day. The museum initially offered a reward of $5 million for information leading to the recovery of the art, but to no avail. In fact, in May of 2017, the reward was doubled to $10 million. So the question is, who did it? So before we go into the suspects really quick, I just want to belabor the point that you made just, just slightly. The fact that this work was stolen and it's highly idiosyncratic and unconventional in the way that it was stolen and that like an art thief that values art wouldn't cut it out of a frame an art thief that valued weird obscure shit would have just done that and not taken the extremely valuable ones so it's this weird like half and half it's like half of the paintings are you know these iconic super famous infinitely valuable paintings the other half are just like strange things that are just now missing from the the fucking uh, museum. I almost said hotel for some reason. I don't know why I said hotel. They're just missing from the art hotel. It's a art. I was, was going to say it's an art hotel. I kind of love the idea that we would just all refer to museums as art hotels from now on. That's what I'm going to call it from now on. Yeah, my art's taking a nap at the art hotel. Um, but that's that's also really fascinating to me in that like they had the know-how, the skill, they were super smart, they planned everything, they used social engineering, and then they also took a bunch of weird random shit that no one wanted. Yeah, and the, and that's, a, I mean, we'll get into the theories of who did it, but like, spoiler alert, nobody fucking knows why they did this or who did this or like what the what the strategy was or what their motivations were. Nobody fucking knows. Like, it's just it's just a total mystery. The first name on everyone's lips was Miles J. Connor Jr., arguably the world's greatest art thief. His biography reads like a Buckaroo Banzai supporting character. His official bio from HarperCollins' website reads, Miles J. Connor grew up in Milton, Massachusetts, the son of a decorated policeman. During the 1960s and 70s, he was the leader of a successful Boston rock and roll band, Miles and the Wild Ones. He robbed his first museum when he was 20 years old. Shortly after, he gained notoriety for his daring escape from a main jail and for his involvement in a dramatic shootout with Boston police. Connor has planned and executed numerous bank robberies and museum heists, several of which are told here for the first time. And the, this this undersells. And once again, I, I kind of want to do I no, I definitely want to do an episode about Miles Connor. But this kind of undersells it because it's like, oh, he was just in the he was in this band. But. At least according to his autobiography, he had this band, Miles and the Wild Ones. They were like super popular in, in the Boston area where like they would go and play concerts and like hundreds or, you know, hundreds and hundreds of women would go out it's like screaming it like Elvis style for them. And they had they cut a, a record. They cut a, a 45 and it was like on every radio station in Boston. And they th uh, it 
like a national record label got wind of this and they wanted to sign Miles and the Wild Ones to a national record deal. So in the in the 60s, they were going to become like this huge band that we would like know about. And Miles was like, nah, I want to steal shit. Like he he like turned down the record deal because he he would rather go and like steal art. I feel like you know how some radio shows have those like touch pads where you can hit it and it'll be you know like an air horn noise or like some catchphrase where it's like BJ and the bear 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 BJ and the bear. I feel like we need one of those that just says kayfabe. We definitely do. I mean, we actually I think we did that for a little bit. We didn't have an air horn on the thing, but I would add the sound effects of that sometimes. We got away from that because like. Do I believe that there is a band called Miles and the Wild Ones? Yes, I've seen footage of them playing. Do I believe that they were reasonably popular in the Boston area? Yes. Do I believe that he turned down a record contract? No. No, I don't. Yeah. I mean, that's that's not even the craziest thing said in the in the book. Yeah, I don't even know how I, I yeah, I, I guess I guess if we do an episode about that, we'll just kind of we would just have to do an episode where we kind of like give a give a I mean, we'll obviously talk about it in the moment too, but we'll have to give some kind of like some kind of message up front that's like this could all be fake. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's the patented JJ Arms declaration of kayfabe. But unfortunately, there's no no one ever did like a, an article about Miles Connor that's like this is all a lie. So you kind of can't. There's no other side of the story. There's no other like version of it you can tell. You, you we only have his account. Miles Connor basically was the Michael Jordan of art thieves. He's stolen priceless paintings in broad daylight, used smoke bombs, and held helpless museum goers at machine gun point, been on the run for years, and had a collection that had at one point over 120 ancient Japanese katanas, the world's largest collection in existence. Oh, and that's another reason why he, like, the the Buckaroo Banzai description is apt, because he was, like, he was totally like that. At least, once again, according to his autobiography, he was, like, he was like this rock star dude who was like good with all the ladies. Everyone wanted to be with him. And he was also like this master thief. But also he was trained in the ways of Bushido. Like he was, like he had that weird like reverence for ancient Japanese feudal culture that like guys have sometimes. I mean, it's even more complicated with Buckaroo Banzai because Buckaroo Banzai, the character is Japanese. The actor is not half Japanese. <laughs> He's stolen Whistlers, Rembrandts, and countless other pieces of priceless culture. But here's the thing. At the time of the Isabella Stewart Gardner heist, Miles J. Connor Jr. was in jail. How are you going to explain that? How are you going to pin a guy on Robert when he was literally in jail when it was happening? There are ways. I don't know, man. He was in jail. Seems pretty cut and dry to me. He was in fucking jail. Moving on from Miles O'Connor for... Moving, I, I don't know why he keeps wanting to say Miles O'Connor. Because you're the fucking racist one. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah, it's that. And I am going to fucking cancel you. Moving on from Miles Connor for a moment, there are four main theories of who could have done the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum heist. Number one, the Dr. No theory, which is, in my opinion, A, the, the best name of all of the theories, and B, I think any of these theories has some version of the Dr. No theory involved in it in some way. The Dr. No Theory posits that a rich multinational art collector hired professional criminals to Ocean's Eleven the paintings. The reason why this theory is popular is because the paintings would be very difficult to fence because they're so famous. 
They also haven't shown up anywhere and haven't been seen in public, meaning they must be in a private collection somewhere. What do you think about this? Does this does this ring true to you? That maybe there's some version of a rich benefactor who's just like, I just want art. Give me the art, criminals. Uh, yeah, I mean, the, it's plausible for sure. Um, I think, I don't know if we get into it here, but there was an incident that occurred where somebody somebody swears that they met up with somebody who tried to sell them the concert by Vermeer. And it was like rolled up in the back of their car and it was like totally ruined. You're taking two stories and mushing them together. That is, there is a Boston Herald journalist who we do talk about later in the script who was like obsessed with this case for a, a number of years. And he met up with someone who claimed to have Rembrandt's on the Sea of Galilee rolled up in a warehouse in New York. And he saw it and they were like, he want we should not talk about this yet. We're getting there. It's it's one of the things. It's one of the things. Yeah, but but it, the reason why I bring it up now is just to say that like based on that uh, supposed eyewitness account, like the painting was just fucking wrecked. So it doesn't seem like this would if that's true, this doesn't seem like it'd be plausible because number one, it's not in someone's private collection, and number two, like this rich person wouldn't have allowed the painting to just get fucking ruined. Yeah. If that eyewitness account is true, that's a big if. If not, maybe it is. Who knows? Which is kind of like everything involving this is always like, so if that, then this. But if not that, then this. Um, the next major theory is called the inside job theory. As the name might suggest, it's basically somebody involved in the museum helped them do it. There are multiple potential culprits for this theory. One being Richard Abath, the night watchman who apparently, according to this theory, was in on it. Another one being that the assistant director of the museum was somehow tied to the job, and another one being that someone who was friends with an employee got insider information because of a gambling debt. So could Richard Abath have done it? It's possible, but when asked about it, he had this to say. Even if they get the painting back, they'll never be the same, and I feel horrible about that. I don't want to be remembered for this alone. I'd like to be remembered for the good things I've done. I'm a husband, a father of two really cool kids. But they're saying it's a half a billion worth of artwork. And ultimately, I'm the one who made the decision to buzz them in. It's the kind of thing most people don't have to learn to cope with. It's like doing penance. It's always there. So there's a lot of footage of him in this documentary um, that, you know, you obviously have seen and I have seen as well. Uh, and my takeaway is I want to be anyone in this story other than Richard Abath because that just seems so horrible. It seems so fucking shitty to like make one like, I don't know, he looks like a cop to me. And now everyone just hates you. And no matter what you do in your entire life, it's just compared to this horrible thing. Yeah, it's like it's like the guy who accidentally ordered that airstrike warning in, in Hawaii. It's just like, you, I mean, maybe that might be illegal in some ways, but like you didn't do anything like technically wrong, like illegal or like something that you would get in trouble for, really. But like everybody hates you like you are you are directly like in a way that was total accident and you didn't mean to. You are just directly responsible for this thing and everybody hates you. Especially because his vibe is so just like, hey, man, how's it going? Like, you can even tell from his quote about, like, him feeling bad. He's like, I'm like a dad to some, like, super chill kids, man. Like, I just fucking want to smoke weed and jam out, bro. 
Like he really just has like very sad hippie dad energy. Yeah, it's just it's a, it's that's that like yeah, I would I agree. I wouldn't want to be in that position at all cuz it's just like god, man. Like I there's nothing I could have done to to avert this unless I just really had the forethought of like maybe these guys are fake. And because I made this one mistake that probably anybody would have done in this scenario because it happened to be me, everybody fucking hates me. What do you think? Does this does the inside job hold any merit for you? Does that kind of is that ring any bells of like I don't really buy it. Not even just because it seems like the guy's harmless or whatever. It just doesn't doesn't seem plausible to me. Next one is the Irish mob theory. The Irish mob theory suggests that the Irish mob did it in order to sell the pieces on the black market in order to get a large amount of money to send to the Irish Republican Army, the IRA, which, as we all know, was engaged in a civil war in the 1990s, and it was a very hot-button issue. What do you think? Does that... Is that feel maybe like it's a little bit more uh, you know a little shimmy shimmy a little shake shake what do you think i mean it's 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 a theory that like could totally be true but also like is a total conspiracy theory like somebody just made that up it's possible that could have happened even plausible but i don't there's no actual evidence of that that's just a that's just like a made up completely speculative theory so the last theory or the last main theory there's you know four that people usually point to and the two main ones are Miles O'Brien or the Italian job or the Italian mafia theory. Um, and this is the Italian mafia theory. A mob-connected criminal named Bobby Donati is thought to have possibly organized the heist in order to get his superior out of jail, something that Miles O'Connor had previously done for himself. If it was Donati... He's not telling anyone because he was found murdered in the trunk of his car in Revere, Massachusetts in 1991. At the time of his death, an informant claimed that the Gardner heist was commissioned by a powerful international organized crime figure and that five total thieves were involved. And here's where things get even crazier. Our boy Miles Connor comes back into the picture, but not in the way you might think. His associate, Bill Youngsworth, who Connor had initially trusted to house his massive collection while he was in jail, started selling the stuff out from under Miles O'Connor out of his storage unit. Bill Youngsworth got picked up for another crime and tried to bargain with the Boston area police by saying that he could provide info on the Isabella Stewart Gardner robbery, but no one believed him. But in the surrounding publicity, Youngsworth befriended a reporter for the Boston Herald. The reporter wanted to believe Youngsworth so much, but needed more evidence in order to speak to the police on Youngsworth's behalf. Youngsworth wanted immunity for both uh, him and for all of his charges to be forgiven, and also wanted immunity for Miles Connor. One night, the phone at the Boston Herald rang, be at your office around midnight, a voice said on the other end, and then hung up. The reporter was taken to a warehouse in New York and shown The Storm by the Sea of Galilee by Rembrandt. Was it real? Was it fake? Nobody really knows. They took uh, paint chips. Uh, they, they, they took paint chips. So at first, before they did the paint chip test, the reporter went and talked to all the people at um, the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum, and they asked them all these really specific questions, like, was the painting signed? Did it have... Uh, like di paint damage in the upper left corner. When he rolled it up, would the paint did the paint f like flake off or was it fine? Like how was it rolled? Wh how long was it? How tall was it? You know, uh, when it when you shone a flashlight on it, did it reflect the light or did it kind of feel like it absorbed the light? 
they asked the reporter all these questions. He got them all right. Then they were just like, we still don't really think this is the painting. So they, they made the reporter go back to Youngsworth or whatever the fuck his name is. What the hell is it? Bill? Yeah, Bill Youngsworth. And he, he was like, I need a paint chip. I need you to give me a paint chip so we can prove that it is the painting. He took he got the paint chip from Bill Youngsworth, took it to a um, basically like a restorative guy. And they were like, is this paint the right paint that could be used time wise for the Sea at Galilee? And he was like, yes, it is. Oh, my God, this is this could be the real painting. And then they took it to a different guy who's an expert in the colors that are used in the painting. And that guy is like Red Lake, which is one of the colors in the painting, is not a color that Rembrandt would have had access to. So it's definitely not. the. I don't I don't think it's the painting. Was it the real painting at Galilee that he saw? Who knows? Um, but those are basically the the three or the three, the four the four uh, kind of assumed possible theories. And then there's also a bunch more stuff with the mob where they basically were using the painting to try and get um, this head mob boss out of prison. Um, is it reputable? Is it the thing that happened? Who knows? But basically. They were trying to ape what Miles Connor had done previously, where he had gotten convicted in a bank heist, and he used a different Rembrandt painting as a hostage. He was like, I've got this painting. I'll give it to you if you let me go. Uh, and they did. So they were trying to do that with this old mob boss. That's basically that thing. And also, as I alluded to, the at, even though he was in prison, and even though it, he said, like, no, I wasn't involved with this, then like later on, probably when he was trying to get a little bit more like attention on him, he was like, I don't know, maybe I did do it. Miles, Miles J. Connor, that is. So what are your what are your do you have a gut instinct one way or the other? If because really it's these theories are kind of just who the fuck knows. But the question is really the only one that we can kind of have any sort of like educated guess is do we think Miles O'Connor is involved in some way or not? Well, that's the the funny thing about it is that the only reason why that's even a discussion topic and the reason why that's even plausible is because of how few art thieves there are, as we talked about before, how insular this whole like underground network of people is. And it's such a small little ecosystem that it makes it plausible that he could have been involved in it in some way because it's like, who else fucking was it besides this one guy who's like the only fucking Pierce Brosnan in the Thomas Crown affair that exists? Um, and also, I think he was like loosely based on him. Uh, but, uh, the, but other than that, I, if it wasn't for that, I would be like, yeah, of course not. Because number one, he was in jail. And number two, he's like a notorious, like fucking yarn spinner. He just seems like he makes up a lot of the stuff of his life. The, the, I mean, and aside from that, like the plausible one to me is like the, the, the fucking, the Italian mob one, like that's the one that sounds the most plausible. But ultimately, the thing that I find more interesting than trying to like speculate about what who did it or whatever, because like honestly, like I'm not I'm not really that into conspiracy theories. Like it, like like in terms of like legitimately creating them and speculating on them, I'm interested in them as a topic and like reading about them and other people's conspiracy theories. But I'm not personally interested in being like, I think it happened like this. Like to me, that's not really engaging because at the end of the day, it's like you just made this up and you're probably wrong. So for me, that does, I don't find that entertaining to do. The thing that's more interesting to me 
is the fact that we have no fucking idea. Like, that's the thing that's fascinating to me. Like, I, I'm not interested in trying to figure it out. The fact that we that to this day, we have zero clue and almost zero leads to get any kind of information about what happened on this night is is crazy. Because of the involvement of the of the level of famous artwork, because of the fact that we've never recovered it, because of the high profile nature of it, um, it's so crazy and fascinating that we just have no idea what happened. Anything involving people, usually you find out something. Like to this day, we never we never caught the Zodiac Killer. But we kind of know who did it. There's just no proof. But we have no fucking idea what happened with this. And the other thing that is really fascinating that we kind of didn't really talk about that is one of the more fascinating things to me is because of the, 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 the way that the Isabella Gardner – because of the way that the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum was set up and the way that she um, established the trust in her will – she basically established that no art could ever be taken out or put into the, the museum. Could, by, by, by contract, they can never take any pieces out and they can never add any pieces. And basically, she just wanted to preserve it as this specific shrine to her art collection that she had. And she never wanted them to like sell off pieces or like bring in new pieces. But because of that specific stipulation in her estate with the trust of the museum, they just had to leave all of those blank spots where all of the art was stolen. So if you go to the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum today, you will see the outlines of where all of these pieces used to hang because they could not replace them. They could not move anything to even like cover it up. They couldn't stagger out pieces or whatever. So there's literal just like empty frames where the the, the uh, pieces were cut out. There's blank spots on the wall where other pieces were taken. And so you can go and see this like time capsule of this robbery that happened, which is like really interesting and fascinating that it got set up that way. And also it feels like it has some kind of meaning that I can't quite place my finger on to walk into this place and see these blank walls where this art was stolen. I'm Dave Baker. And I'm Spandrew Spice. This has been Deep Cuts. You can find me online at heydavebaker.com. Spandrew, where can they find you? You can find me in my warehouse looking at my priceless Vermeer concert painting because it was me, motherfuckers! <laughs> Even though I was like, fucking three when this happened and you can't find me on social media because i don't use social media but if you want to pay your respects to the dear beloved papa pricey you can find his book deadbolt ai private eye at dapricerights.com you can follow us on social media at deep cuts podcast on facebook join the deep cuts podcast facebook group where we talk about the show and make memes you can follow us on instagram at deep cuts pod you can join our discord server bitly.com slash deep cuts discord you can go to our shop, deepcutspod.com, click on the shop, you can get hats and t-shirts and all that kind of cool stuff. And there's going to be some cool, even cooler stuff coming down the pipeline that I'm excited, but I'm not going to tell you. So just leave it at that.
Cuts is a production by Boy Genius Media. If you'd like to find this show and others like it, please visit boygeniusmedia.com or deepcutspod.com. If you want to join in on post-episode discussions, please join the Deep Cuts Podcast Facebook group. Finally, subscribe to our YouTube channel for additional video content.